Welcome to Human First. My name is David Tilston, and this podcast explores the methods, habits, and processes which allow us to excel as human beings. My aim is to utilize the experience and knowledge of experts from a wide range of different fields and to translate these into easy to follow principles that can be adopted by you to improve your life and those around you. On today's episode, I welcome Rachel Hobbs to the podcast. Rachel is a clinically trained dietitian, certified therapist, and has been voted one of the top exercise trainers in the world. She helps individuals to overcome fear, develop food freedom, and to rediscover themselves and their passions so they are finally free to experience joy, pleasure, and purpose. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Let's get into it. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Absolute pleasure to have you on here. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I wanted to talk to you for a while because I've been following your work. Obviously, we've sort of collaborated on work in the past, uh, about a couple of years ago now as well. And I've been really fascinated to see how your work has progressed over time. And I think a good place to start would be your background, your experience, and a couple of the crazy athletic achievements you've got yourself into over the years. Fab, yeah, of course. So I came into the fitness industry as a personal trainer about gosh, 13, 14 years ago. Um, And I'd always wanted to be a pathologist um, and working within forensic science. But I had um, a little boy when I was 18 and there was just no universities local to me. So I kind of fell into doing um, a degree in dietetics and nutrition. And that really supported my personal training. And I, I realized I did really want to create a more holistic approach to working with individuals. And then I was really interested in sports performance nutrition, so went on to do my diploma in sports nutrition with the International Olympic Committee. And that was when I I really kind of explored my own sporting performance and wanted to see just how capable my human body was and what you could push it to. So first of all, I think I'd always been quite sporty as a gymnast and a dancer as a child. And then I went and did... um, a bikini like bodybuilding competition and that was an amazing experience but for me it wasn't really my thing I didn't really like being on stage or look or being being watched in that way um and then as I was kind of dieting out and started lifting heavy again someone scouted me for the um powerlifting team for Great Britain and I went on to um win the European Championships and break the British records for squat and deadlift And so I did that for two or three years, tore my hamstring, which was kind of the the reason why I stopped that. But I still I love lifting heavy now. And then I went on to um, do triathlons and did a Ironman. So that's that's where my sporting background went. And then I wanted to delve a little bit further into the more psychological, spiritual side of working with individuals on a one to one basis and. Um, had quite a lot of experience within disordered eating so um, did some different CPD and therapeutic modalities and now I'm just I've got about a year left of my psychotherapy uh, registration. Well that's a lot Um, so just going back to that um, one thing that jumps out being a parent as well is how did you find balancing being a mum and also going through study diplomas degrees that sort of stuff how did you find that was it quite hard oh yeah it was incredibly hard looking back but I think when you're in it like I'd never known anything else it was it was all I knew and there was really I was by myself so there was no I didn't see any other option so I think in that situation you just kind of go into some sort of survival mode and you just do it you just get on with it yeah and it's um the the gymnast and the dancer is quite interesting as well because I, I don't know why but there seems to be this sort of coincidence that people I tend to uh, get on the podcast as well they go oh by the way I did dancing some form of art was part of their lifestyle or they had some form of routine growing up um, was that something that your parents sort of wanted to get you into gymnastics and that sort of stuff is that just uh, a route they wanted to explore for yourself yeah, absolutely. I think our mum, I say our because I'm an identical twin. So when I talk about ah. our childhood, we always did everything together. So she was really keen to get us into dancing. So I think we started when we were about two or three. And yeah, it just became 
yeah, habitual. It was just something that we did. And we do that on a Wednesday. I think we do gymnastics like three times a week. And, you know, she was really great at ensuring that we just had a go at everything. So when we started school, we were those kids that would just dive into every sport and every club just to give it a go. I mean, I've seen discipline from um, getting into similar things over the years. And I think that definitely carries over into many other aspects of your life. Did you find that that sort of gave you a drive to want to learn new things by getting into things like gymnastics and dance? Because there's so much to learn within those templates, within those methods. Yeah, I think I think it, you're completely right. It completely does. If you're given that kind of basis as a child, it's, I still now love learning and really enjoy, you know, there's always a course or some some CPD that I'm really excited about doing and I think as an adult it's very different isn't it you kind of you're not forced into it it becomes like a choice I think that's something that's quite hard to reinstill if it's not part of your process you tend to find people that have continually thrown themselves into uh, I don't know running into a dance class and just looking like a like, like not supposed to be there and they're just dancing away, doing their thing, and then they go and try something completely different. When you get into the habit of being the person in the room that's not great, it is quite easy to continue that process. But when you become the best in the room, and I've said this in previous podcasts, I was always told if you're the best in the room, you're in the wrong room. It's really helped me sort of go into different practices, but without having that guidance, maybe I would have stuck at the same thing and just thought, this is my happy place, I'm good here, and I feel competent. But there's a lot of learning within those processes, isn't there? Definitely. I've definitely there have been times in my life where you have to put yourself in an uncomfortable place sometimes. And that's really challenging. And it's so much easier, isn't it, just to stay put? And I just think you get used to being not very good at things. Like and you just get to a point that you're like, it's okay. As humans, we're not good, generally very good at things anyway. If you if you analyze our attributes, many animals and things in nature are designed to be very good at a certain thing, whether they're flying, climbing, uh, I don't know, eating things. They're, they're, they're designed to sort of do those things. Us as humans, we're very general. We're very normal and average at many things. Yes. Well, is that jack of all trades? Master of none. <laughs> but apparently that's not the full quote. It then goes on to say something like, but master of none is better than master of one or something like that. Oh, okay how it's better to be a generalist. Yeah, and, and I think if you always come from that perspective, then you can be a little bit less harsh on yourself because you're not trying to achieve things in such a short space um, or frame of time. And it's really interesting when I look at nutrition, and obviously you're very, very experienced in, in that front. My own perspective of nutrition is that people tend to overanalyze. They tend to Look into every day instead of actually zooming out and using the concept of the, the moving average, which we've used at the Natural Edge in the past, is that looking at a year instead of a day. When you analyze a day, you start to get very like, oh my God, I just had this piece of food that wasn't within my diet program or plan. I'm going to freak out and go ballistic for six days. As opposed to looking at the year and go, hey, this is okay. This is, this is a nice relaxed way of eating. Um, and I was going to ask you about that. What is your... If you were to summarize a healthy eating ethos or methodology, how would you look upon that now? And is that different to say five years ago? So I would definitely say now it would be much more directed to like the literacy we experience. So food, food literacy and body literacy and being able to read our own bodies and have an understanding about everything from food systems to the sustainability of food. Whereas probably I would say maybe not five years ago, but 10 years ago when I was like quite deeply entrenched within, I would say, the fitness industry, it would be much more a focus around numbers and hitting targets. And that would be a sign of, you know, a successful diet. But now, we're, like you said, we do need to look at the broader picture and look at actually what is a healthy relationship with food in the scheme of our entire lives rather than just you know, we do become very focused on our diet because it's all around us. And especially with things like diet culture and the pressures that, you know, men and women have to be in a certain body, you know, we have to step back and look at actually in the grand scheme of our life, do I need to be paying this much attention to the foods that I'm eating? Because environment's a huge influence as well, isn't it? And this is what 
I've been working with a good friend of mine from from Harley Street and with nutrition for, for the last couple of years. And he's very much about the light you expose your body to, the uh, environmental toxins and just, just your general environment. Like, are you going back to a stressful environment every day? Because even if you have the optimal, whatever that is, diet, then you start to expose yourself to undue stress. Then your body's going to go haywire and it's not going to utilize that fuel correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And if we're you know, so stressed about getting the exact amount of nutrients in, is that really healthy for us either? It's that balance, isn't it? It's, it's understanding, can I sustain this without causing undue stress to my life? Or, or am I actually just causing more stress by trying to track everything? Yeah. And I think health is so multifaceted and we forget that. We focus so much, I think, in the Western world on like physiological health. And there's more about mental health now. But we also have to consider like our societal health, um, emotional health, spiritual health, and they just kind of get pushed to the sideline a little bit. And I think it's important that we bring it all in together. Did you experience like forms of disorder eating either? um, Obviously, I understand it's quite a personal question, either personally or in others. Have you seen disorder eating maybe on the increase or experienced it personally? Or have you seen it within certain cultures? And what I'm leading to slightly is the bodybuilding culture. Yeah, I mean, I experienced it in my teenage years, certainly. Um, And what I didn't understand then that I do now is almost that there's not a singular cause and and it's from a genetic perspective, we know, and there's other aspects that come in. Mine was very much triggered by a a traumatic event and it was a way that I had somehow learned to cope. And I think when we learn about these things and the neurobiological changes that happen, it takes a little bit of the shame away and it offers us some understanding Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I went through the, uh, like the bikini bodybuilding side of things and was inside, I'd say the fitness industry, I think the disordered eating practices that happen there become so normalized that when I was in that, I didn't even know what it just felt so normal. Cause everyone's doing it. Cause everyone's doing it. Like you become people you surround yourself with. And I think it was, it's not till you step back and say, actually, that's not for me that you realize mm-hmm. how disordered it has become in some areas of the fitness industry. Yeah, because I mean, the, the main driving point within bodybuilding contests is aesthetics, isn't it? And I am trying to get a guest on the podcast who's very experienced and is at quite a high level as well. There are other reasons. Obviously, we understand there's anabolic steroids being used. There's um, things that can cause enlargements to the heart and various other issues, cardiac issues. There's been a number of bodybuilders that have unfortunately passed away over the years because either through poor guidance or like insane amounts of diuretics pre-show. And it's really interesting, but that still fits into that whole nutrition aspect because it's still trying to tick off this aesthetic goal for a particular, maybe two hours. And it just seems to me, it's crazy really. I mean, I used to bodybuild, I call it bodybuilding from sort of the ages of, I don't know, 16 to my early 20s until I realized I moved like a brick when I got into martial arts. <laughs> and it was just unsustainable, like waking up at 2 a.m. to have a casing shake and then getting up at had to be food at 7 a.m. and then food again at 9. It's a stressful way of living. It's stressful mentally, physically, and yet, like you said, spiritually as well. Yeah, and I think it as well for a lot of individuals that I've worked with, it's, it's not just the, the lead up. To the event it's the like the what happens to their bodies after the event because we can't maintain that level of of lean body fat for mm-hmm. a long time and dealing you know when we're given so much praise for being lean we have to then deal with the psychological consequences of effectively getting fatter again and fitting into a normal life again and that's really difficult and i think that's where things like binge eating becomes quite prevalent because mm-hmm. you really desperately felt a sense of achievement or you linked a lot of your kind of self-worth to that lean body. And then when you don't have it, how do you identify? It's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you see yourself, it comes back to that elitist perspective. You see yourself as better than normal um, and you're not looking at that generalist aspect anymore. It's like, I am, I am lean, I am muscular, I must maintain this because this is me and I get more attention when when I am like this, I get rewarded for it in a show, I get more money or whatever it might be. Something else that interests me with that is how you progress into looking at the more mindful, uh, mindfulness side or mindlessness side, however you want to interpret that. And then equally the spiritual aspect to it. So would you be able to go into what led you to that? And do you feel like 
Did you feel like something was missing with the whole context prior to that, looking at numbers? Did you feel that it was a missing part that maybe mindfulness sort of ticked off? Yeah, I guess there is. there did always feel like there was something missing or something that is is deeper, like below the surface. Because our relationship with food and our bodies are, you know, so deep. They contain, you know, so much emotions and so much memories. And food is never just fuel. Like if we're a kid and we fall over, a lot of people will associate, you know, what food will make us feel better. And we create all these different associations with food from when we're younger. So sometimes it does just take us to actually take some take a step back and self-discover you know where did I learn this message from like is it even an accurate message for me to continue in my adult life is it helpful for me to have this belief and how can I you know if it's not how can I change it and what would a more helpful message be so sometimes it's just about yeah just taking that step back and and looking inwards it's funny you actually mentioned that where where we get these messages from so there's a there's a song and I'm sure you know it but being a dad obviously you start to learn all these things and it's uh <laughs> miss polly had a dolly that was sick 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 and then she went to the doctor for a pill i was like no she did not go to the doctor for a pill she went outside and she got some good exercise and had some great food <laughs> yeah and it is it is they just become you know and even as as parents we probably you know i probably say things that my mum said to me that isn't true or accurate or they don't actually want my my son to have as a as a belief but it, you know it goes through these generations doesn't it you call it like the cycle breaker don't you you we get to choose where we're going to break this cycle um but yeah sometimes it's so automatic that we we don't even realize it yeah like you said it's culture and experiencing different cultures around the world because i know you lived abroad as well you spent time abroad i spent time abroad yeah i've never lived abroad. yeah okay I mean, I only lived abroad for, say, a year and obviously spent a number of time or different occasions abroad with my wife. And we sort of loved seeing different cultures because when you step out of your own, and I went into depth with this in one of the previous podcasts with a good friend of mine, is you start to realize that, again, normal isn't normal because it's very subjective to where you are, what time you're within and the people you're with. Absolutely. I spent a couple of months in Fiji, actually, and we were looking at some of the um, like health statistics there. They've got a research centre there and they were basically saying as soon as they introduced westernised TV, um, school aged girls had started engaging in binge and purging or self-induced vomiting and that they'd never recognised even as a thing over there. But because there's a change, I guess, in what normal is or what healthy should look like it it impacts isn't it on on the behaviors of the the different cultures and i think yeah just it's amazing how that can influence the whole society that's insane i mean i have heard similar things before because obviously the um how do you say a lot of the celebrities that make it to tv have got um you, you look at i don't know j-lo as an example like she's in great shape but she's got uh, uh, an untold amount of uh, help with this. She's got probably a dietitian on hand, probably multiple dietitians, personal trainers in different areas, gyms on hand. And not to say life isn't probably difficult for her in many different ways because of commitments and stuff, but it does help. It does make things easier. And when you compare yourself, maybe as a as a mum or as a teenager or or any anything, any role in life, you have these multi-dimensional approach to life that we all have to deal with we are parents whether we're siblings son's daughter all, all these different things come in to your daily life and when you list them out you go whoa how am I actually going to achieve anything today this is insane yeah and I think especially with like diet and fitness in our body it's almost like we assume that we should be able to do certain things like it's almost like that doesn't even come into account like we should be able to look a certain way if other people are doing it, why can't we? We just don't offer ourselves that compassion. Like, so you know, I think our bodies are meant to change. They they don't need to stay the same. And and whereas we expect that we should be able to keep them within certain parameters, and that's linked to our morality. Do you think talking about disorder eating, I'd say I definitely went through a form of this, especially around the bodybuilding time. And also when I started to run long distance, I was getting lighter and skinnier, couldn't see it myself. Um, and I was getting very, very quick, but it got to a point where my body just started to break down. Injuries were more frequent um, and uh, that line dropped. And it, I was in this sort of spiral where uh, I got basic energy was low. I started to get more depressed about things and few 
traumatic incidents sort of occurred um and things things became a little bit harder so then you start to look at food as a is in like a way of controlling things obviously you said there can be many things that are involved with it but do you think one of the fundamental reasons why food is used in that way or whether people are bulimic or anorexic or or even overeating is is another aspect of this do you think that's because they're trying to control something because maybe they can't quite deal with the thoughts or the experiences they've been through? I mean, a lot of people will say when they when they look back on it, it, it used as a way to control or it used a way to numb. Whereas some people will say perhaps it will be a use, used as a way to feel something, depending on where we are in our nervous system and emotional regulation. I think... Um, We know that there are some neurobiological changes that happen when we are in an energy deficit. And for some individuals, due to their genetics, that might switch on certain genes, whereby actually food restriction eases anxiety. So to help an individual understand that this is a change that has happened in your brain and it's not a conscious choice that you're making to restrict food is takes away a lot of that shame for them that they're experiencing because it's actually a brain change has happened as a result of the energy restriction. And it becomes that, then that becomes a challenge because to eat more food becomes more anxiety um, provoking for them. And to ease that anxiety, a natural thing for them would be to eat less food. So to get out of that cycle is, is, you know, it's really courageous work on their behalf. And it does take a, a lot of kind of, mdt team input sometimes Mm -hmm. would you say things like fasting are beneficial sometimes i mean obviously it's very individual these cases but have you seen good results with using intermittent or longer fasts so i predominantly would say i work with premenopausal females so that wouldn't be something that we would consider just from a hormonal perspective it wouldn't be beneficial for them Um, and especially in the type of individual that i work with with experience with disordered eating a fast probably wouldn't be something that we would recommend we would recommend more so a regular pattern of eating to stabilize blood glucose why why wouldn't you um i'm slightly aware of these reasons but could you explain why that wouldn't be beneficial to recommend for because because i know there's quite a few ladies that um listen to this podcast as well so information like this would be absolute gold for them so um there was some great research that has been done by Dr. Stacey Sims. She's got a book called Raw, um, and she also has a great TED talk, and it's called Women Are Not S- Small Men. And she's because a lot of the sports nutrition research was done on men, and then they tried to apply it to females, and it just doesn't work because physiologically we do have hormonal differences. So I definitely recommend having a read of that. But I think her research, rather than on long fast, was on um, more so like skipping breakfast or pushing uh, that breakfast window. So you're going on kind of a longer overnight fast. Mm -hmm. And the principle is that when we wake up in the morning, our stress hormones are higher. And then if we're doing something like exercise fasted and then we're having a coffee or something like that, you know, our adrenaline, our cortisol is going to be high. And this has a negative impact on our uh, female hormones. So we actually want to have some breakfast or something before we train in the majority of cases to uh, start to kind of blunt that stress response in the morning. That's interesting. Uh, One of the other things that comes up quite frequently is in postmenopausal ladies is that uh, issues around joints. And it's just, I mean, I didn't see this tangent coming, but I think it sort of goes into it quite nicely. Um, Are there methods that you found that have improved Uh, issues with joints is it mainly around inflammatory issues that these things tend to flare up with Uh, I think I think there's more risk isn't there in in postmen it's not my area of speciality but in postmenopausal women because estrogen is lower um, Mm -hmm. that has an impact so if we can try and manage that the the estrogen decline you know and we can use certain foods we can use uh, anti-inflammatory foods then that should aid it but I think sometimes you know, individuals do need support from something like HRT. And I don't think we yeah. can, yeah, deny that. It's, it's interesting as well, because I, from what I've experienced with, call it family members or friends that have taken that route, even at a very small dosage, their quality of life has improved so much that they're like, well, do the risks outweigh 
the benefits outweigh the risks? In their opinion, yes, because like we come back to, like you said about nutrition, they're less stressed, so they're more chilled out, they're enjoying life more, they can do more things, they're not feeling like their body's aching all the time. Or, um, and to me, that quality of life is so important as well. Yeah, hugely, I think. You know, if someone's waking up four or five times in the night with night sweats, going through the, the menopause, then they're exhausted all day, reaching for probably like higher sugar foods, that's gonna, you know, have a negative impact in, in some areas as well. So actually, if they're gonna have a small dose of HRT and some progesterone cream, that might be more beneficial you know, in short and long term. Yeah, because uh, I was being explained to a while ago as well that the studies are mixed because there are links, but again, it depends which study you look at to do with breast cancer and other things that can supposedly be linked to certain drugs or whatever it might be. But again, some of them contradict each other. And it's the same in nutrition all the time, isn't it? It's like one person says this and one person saying eat this and then you realise too much of that causes um, issues around oxalates and all these other things that can come up as well. Yeah, and I think it's really hard for for members of like the general public when they are being told by all these different professionals actually who is right because all the information seems to be different at different times. I tend to see certain trends that come into the industry depending on how do you say who's pushing it and who's making money from it as well and it seems to always come back to I mean I was chatting to my grandparents I always spend time talking to an older generation maybe one or two ahead of me because it's always interesting to see how they lived and most of them had allotments they had fresh veg they had their own animals that which were talk about low carbon footprint literally it was on their doorstep and it was their own food there was no bags, there was no plastic, there was no avocado shipped from South America or wherever else it's going to be. So when, when certain agendas are being pushed, I tend to find in the current environment, especially now, especially around all of the, the climate change stuff, the context is very important. Is in, is meat bad? Well, if you get it from around the corner from your local farmer, no. <laughs> like, so you're, you're supporting sustainable land as opposed to getting it from a meat factory that's different. It's a very different context. Yeah, and I think I think that you know people, our mindsets are generally primed. It seems to be for this like all or nothing, like yes or no. Just get, tell me the answer is should I do this or should I not do this? When actually there is there is more to it, and and there's never it's never. Sometimes it is as simple as it is, but there's always a deeper explanation. So you, would your perspective be really about? Um... One of the key things I argue in my own perspective is that mineral density has been a huge thing for me over the years. So the more mineral dense my foods have been, the better I've felt. So I'm not afraid of eating more fat. Um, and that more fat for me has been brilliant. The way I, I work on higher fat diets is just great. And I run my bloods every year, saturated fat, uh, cholesterol's all looking good. But I feel good. And again, I've always come back to how do I feel like a more intuitive approach to food? Would you say intuition when you really start to learn about your body is a good way of looking at things as well as like a mineral dense approach to eating yeah so i think hugely body literacy is something that's so important so we would start off by kind of teaching that by trying to think out do you know how does my body feel after for example i've eaten a takeaway pizza compared to if i've eaten like something that's home cooked and mineral dense and there's nothing wrong with having the pizza, but how is this making you feel? Like, let's tune in. And not just, um, I think a lot of us try and tune in with our bodies through our minds. So we're using our belief system to be like, this is good or this is bad. So for example, where you've said, actually, you feel great on a high fat diet or a higher fat diet, some individuals will be like, oh no, I wouldn't feel good because they would automatically think, oh, do you know what? Higher fat means more calories, more calories might mean weight gain, weight gain might mean X, Y, Z. And, um, and that would stop them from even experimenting with that. You know, in modern society, we're just disconnected from our bodies. We live just outside of them. And I think to support someone to get back in their bodies is, it takes a long time. Like any relationship, it takes time and effort to build that connection and build that trust that our body trusts us and we trust our bodies. It's crazy, isn't it? It's like we almost look at ourselves like this avatar that we've made on a computer game that we're looking at our attributes and the way we view life. And it's like, Rachel sees the world like this, this, and this. And in reality, the only way, and this is what yoga and breath work really did for me, is that 
it got me to stop and actually just when you when you're sitting for hours and hours and hours or lying down and just feeling your breath come in the body and back out the body and then maybe you're using a form of um, body scan so you can call it body scan yoga nidra whatever it needs to be you're actually dealing with that direct sensation um, and one of the most surreal experiences i had was with the gongs unbelievable i had um i had some sort of cold weather injuries to my toes and fingers from the military and when i I was like, look, I'll, I'll try it. It's new, brilliant. Let's, let's see what happens. After about 20 minutes, my fingers, basically where all the cold weather injuries were, they felt like they were on fire um, just through the vibration. And there was a couple of other areas, like my mid-back, where I'd had an issue in the past, and all of these things flared up. And I'm not joking, within a week, my fingers started to improve. I didn't have um, like these chronic... It basically used to get really painful every winter. Every time I used to go into the cold... They used to sting so much, but then within a few weeks, it all stopped. It was unbelievable. And again, it was another way of tuning in because it was such an intense experience. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. I just don't think we allow ourselves to do it enough. Like not many people that I speak to would allow themselves to go and spend an hour just lying, listening to gongs. It's, you know, it feels, it feels I think for a lot of people, very self-indulgent. And I think that's sometimes the barrier for people is that they don't feel worthy enough or deserving enough to just give them time to explore these avenues. I've always seen it like you need to be a little bit selfish to give, um, to be more unselfish in your, your daily life. Like if you can take an hour to two hours to yourself, the likelihood is the rest of your day, you're gonna be so much more productive, more engaged with people because you're not thinking, do you know what? I wish I'd done that today. I wish I'd been there. I wanted to experience that, but I sacrificed my time and my space to give it to other people, which is a credible thing. And it's really honorable to do that. But it's one of those, you look at this and it's a false way of looking at these things really, isn't it? Because you haven't had the time to step back and say, what do I want? What do I need to make my life better and the people around me better? Because you've given yourself of service straight away, first thing in the day. And as a parent, that's a very easy thing to do, isn't it? Very easy. Yeah, and I think it does. Our service does come across different when we when we serve from a place of self love rather than a a place almost like sometimes of self avoidance. I think some individuals will very much be the fixers and the healers and the helpers because it's a way we can avoid our own issues. And actually, some people for some individuals, it's quite scary to connect to our bodies and quite scary to connect to what we need and what we want because you know maybe we don't have the skill set or the tools to to know actually if if we're not doing what we want how we can change that so you need you need to learn tools i think this is the harbor isn't it this is the barrier you need to be able to almost be told to step back a little bit and try these different methods and this is why i find i've said this countless times but it's only because from my own experience it's been so valuable to have coaches and surrounding myself with people that can advise because i don't know everything far from it know very little so sometimes I have to go to someone like, like yourself or someone else to say, hey, I'm going through this. Um, c- can you advise me? Can you guide me to go and look somewhere or do something that you found beneficial or you've seen beneficial with someone else? Because otherwise you end up going, oh, well, um, I'll look on Google. Why have I got a headache? Oh, you might have a headache because you're dehydrated. No one's done an assessment. No one's had a look at you. No one knows how you feel, who you are. I think it does yeah. when it comes up with a billion answers, but none of them are specific to us, are they? And I do no. think there is definitely that aspect of like, we're social creatures and we've been, you know, for, for generations, it's that sense of community and we just, we don't have it as much anymore. We don't have the elders that are coming in to support us with things that they've experienced. So we have to reach out to uh, like professionals or however we want to say it to to gain that guidance yeah the the hard thing as well is deciphering who's actually a professional nowadays as well because it's very easy um to like, like you said okay so going through your own experience the amount of time years and dedication you had to give to to your studies and then continuing to study for years beyond that as well and life experience is an important process because you you take those studies from a textbook or from a learning environment and put them to practice. And only then can you decipher whether they actually work in, I use this loosely, but the real world. And that might just be in a particular culture. It might, that might be completely different in uh, Asia or the Middle East. It might fluctuate depending on that. Um, 
but experience is so important and this is why when someone does a weekend course in something and then starts to teach other teachers these processes you're like whoa hold on hold on where's the experience <laughs> where's the learning it is it's incredibly difficult and I think definitely when I first qualified as a dietitian I would be quite resentful of individuals that had just done a weekend course in nutrition but I think over time you kind of just accept that that that's how it is and that actually the people that go to them will realize hopefully that that's not what's right for them and they will find someone that can support them and hopefully that the individuals that do the weekend course will realize at some point hey I do need to look into this a little bit further yeah I've I've always said that this you need to start somewhere you need to you need to get stuck and everyone's a beginner at some point and we're all beginners all the time but it's it's a starting block it's it's like you get an accreditation or a certification as as a way of saying okay well done you've achieved the first part of the process um then you have to gain the experience somehow but i think again sometimes these things come up um i've had a few things come up as a coach that i go it's not my expertise this is not my field i can advise you to a certain degree but i would recommend checking in with a good friend of mine and i'm more than happily pass you on because it's an important thing and especially when you're dealing with people's health like you said like some of these processes that are very deep rooted you don't want to start playing with numbers again if that's going to start to waken up this this disorder eating and i think that's where as professionals it supports us all to have supervisors supervision groups mentors just so that we can if we're working with humans you know humans are really complex that we can run things off through like obviously confidentially but um yeah, just having that other professional or group of professionals to say, like, this is how I've experienced this. How would you experience this? And, you know, working together in that collaboration, I think, is so important as a, as professionals. What would you say is the main challenge you see as a, a dietitian when working with people? Uh, is there any particular thing that comes up repeatedly that you go, OK, yep, this is what everyone seems to be experiencing right now? Yeah, so in, in my work, it would definitely be a fear of weight gain what would happen and, and this is the reality is when we start delving into it like what happens if the worst case scenario were to happen and you did gain weight you know it generally comes down to this fact there's this fear of abandonment or I won't be as worthy or you know and it's very difficult because we do live in a society where we do experience weight stigma so someone in a fatter or a larger body will probably experience life more difficult than someone mm. that's in a thinner or leaner body and we can't deny that. So that's quite a difficult concept to discuss and also to to support someone to realise, you know what, we're all healthy at different body sizes. And that can be very difficult as well, because for a long, long time, they've experienced from medical professionals, from teachers, that we should be in a certain size body and that equals health and that equals morality. So it's, I think, definitely to overcome this chaotic eating patterns or eating disorders it is about overcoming this fear of of weight gain so abandonment from i suppose a big one would be partners that uh, if i gain weight my partner won't find me attractive anymore and that will affect my relationship or i could be on my own like you said and this this which is a you know a human need isn't it is to be valued to be loved to be seen as worthy to have deep connections and if we feel that weight gain is going to prevent us from being loved and being valued then we are going to do what we can to prevent that it's a powerful message isn't it especially passing that on to younger generations to say that regardless of how you look um that if that health is is multi-dimensional as well and being a certain body size or shape doesn't mean you're any less valuable because i suppose the younger I mean, i'm just thinking as well it's, it's it's fascinating talking to people like yourself where learning habits that I can instill uh, as a parent with uh, as my little ones grow up that you can say you you are worthy like it doesn't matter what you look like you're going to have a great life and you're going to do well just keep keep that in mind all the way through absolutely because we do live in this like achievement culture don't we whether it's mm. with our bodies or you know sporting achievements or studies or anything like that like we do value productivity and getting stuff done way much more than we just value like being a kind person it's that dopamine hit isn't it it's, it's the the reward culture of uh, what have you achieved today and i've done this and i've done this and, and we all fall into it as well especially when you run your own business because you need to have 
a certain element of I need to get these things done because otherwise it won't earn any money. <laughs> my my default was always if I was stressed or struggling or whatever it was, was to always work more because it's, you know, you don't have to rely on anyone else. You just get it done. Whereas now when my thought goes to that place, I'm like, do you know what? You That's the opposite of what you need to do. You need to go and take a walk. Yeah, my, mine seems to be a sauna right now as well. It's like, go and sit in the sauna. There's no phones. There's nothing. Just sit there. 20 minutes and sweat. <laughs> and that's a great... I think it is because we are constantly inundated with stimuli, aren't we? That <clears throat> actually we become so hyper-stimulated, computers, phones, whatever it is. And actually we sometimes just need to just not have anything. Do you think that's linked to the consumption of sugars and fast food? Do you think there's a, a strong tie there? I think that definitely has, a, has an impact on... Our, our mood state I'm trying to think what the the recent research is actually I did a food and mood talk but it was a couple of years ago and that was around um I mean whether we want to label like ADHD and those type of things but it was about the impact that foods that are higher in sugar and higher in kind of process additives impact our focus and our concentration and mood states a few uh, teachers within my close circle whether they've retired or um, my, my mother was a teacher as well for about 36 years and she always used to say that you could sometimes see the difference in the children depending on what they'd sort of uh, consumed. Um, I've, I've heard this from many people as well. So say um, there was a lot of sugar in their lunch and then the afternoon these kids are tearing around for hours and hours and hours where you, you could see sort of the slight difference in, um, how do you say, balance of macronutrients can how it can influence uh, behavior to a degree and uh, what well, I mean behavior loosely as well in more more in terms of energy output that sort of stuff not you're a bad person if you've eaten sugar but I think you know even as adults we sometimes don't recognize it do we sometimes we're exhausted and we actually just need to take a break but we have like more coffee and a chocolate biscuit to try and like push us through because it gives us that false sense of energy as adults, if we don't recognise it, it's very hard to be able to teach our kids about, hey, we can have some sweets, but if they make us feel like this and they turn our behaviour like that, then maybe we should, you know, think about how else we can, you know, tune into our bodies. It's difficult. Yeah, we've we've tried to do this because obviously breath work's been a huge part of my learning process and fortunate to sort of be able to pass this on now is that we try and teach Esme, although she can't respond to us with words yet, when she's stressed, we'll start to slow breathe in front of her. That's amazing. So we'll do, um, there was a show that we watched ages ago and he, he used to say inhaler, exhaler, but it's because it was, it was, it was like a Spanish show, but he basically used to, um, I think it's Spanish, but <laughs> he used to go through that. And when we used to do it, she used to laugh, but then we realized that it used to calm her down. So then every time she got stressed, we just go, and we do five breaths and then all of her sporadic crying just went to complete like, oh, okay. They're, you see her breathing pattern starting to match after a while. And there's that huge aspect of like co-regulation within nervous systems, isn't there as well? I know if my son's hyper-stimulated or in, in hyper-arousal and then I also come in and I'm stressed, it's just going to elevate it more. But actually if one of us can, if I can come in and be that, you know, that calm nervous system for him and regulated nervous system then he's gonna much more likely calm down yeah it always needs <laughs> it's true isn't it if you if the whole family is stressed out it's just gonna go up and up and up and up and this is a nice thing about uh, relationships as well uh, we always tend to find if one of us is a little bit up the other one sort of brings the other one down and we take our turns for sure um that's just that's just part of life have you heard of the view no. Oh, so the VU, I think it's just, it's the same as the hum. I think it basically like stimulates the vocal cord, increases that exhalation. And it almost started as a joke in our family. And now it's become like a thing. Like if someone's stressed, we just say do the VU. So it's basically just ex extending that VU sound like a foghorn. And it does, it does downregulate. That's awesome. I'm going to have to try that. It's literally just like literally that. Yeah. As low Whoa. as you can, like a full comp. Type it into, um, I'm trying to think who, you, it might have been, um, it wasn't Peter Levine, I'm trying to think. It might have been um, Porgs, like Stephen Porgs, polyvagal mm -hmm. theory. He might have created something like that. Yeah, but definitely have a little look. We used to see that in 
see one of one of the practices um in sort of when i when i say yoga i'm talking about the whole of the the context of yoga as as opposed to just uh, asana um you do uh, basically repetition of om and you'd find it was really strange at the start of the practice everyone's all over the place you go oh and people are sort of gasping for breath after about 20 of them generally do say 21 plus it was incredible. The whole room was in sync and there was like there was a resonance in the room. And the only way I can describe it is when you listen to a, a good band, when they just are in tune, you go, whoa, this is incredible. And it was exactly the same. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Just the use of sound and vibration and, and breath, how we can create a different mood state, not just as, a, as individually, but collectively as well. Hmm. I, th- I, I I always I try, I try and zoom out a little bit as well, and I think what is this? Why people uh, sang like went to choirs and uh, got together, and obviously ceremony is a huge thing, and uh, mantras. I've talked about this in the past, but the more I look at mantras, the repetition of the group going through these different sounds and all the rest of it, it sort of brings it brings people together in some shape or form, and I see this with either movement or sound when there's some collective expression that draws people together because it almost transcends words you're just experiencing it yeah yeah have you done any um reading or research into like tantra it's not something i've got into yet um be interested to hear about your experiences actually so i think like obviously there's neo tantra which is the more like sexual side of it but then the the original tantra was more just based around uh, mindfulness meditation and breath and it's kind of these similar aspects that it that you already kind of practice it, I think it differs from yoga in that it was basically saying there's no there's no actual movement in it so it was more accessible for people for a long time but I just think it's how yeah however we, we receive it really if you look at a lot of the ancient sort of the the ancient texts a lot of the yoga itself was seated and the primary focus of the movement was to prepare the body to sit and that was it um, so there was only really five movements that initially that allowed, uh, enabled the body to get to where it was. But then obviously people came in and went, whoa, 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 hold on a second. These five movements are insane. Like people can't do this. People can barely touch their knees. So they start, so it became this more complex system over time. And obviously how it looks now is I'm sure very different to how, um, it was interpreted years ago. My viewpoint on it as well, as yoga as a whole, especially when teaching asana, is providing um, a service that allows people to move better. And if they can move better and they can think better, breathe better, then that's contributed to the process of a better human life. Otherwise, you end up saying, no, this is this system and this is how it should be done. And again, it comes back to culture. It becomes almost like a, a cultish way of looking at something that should be just improving a human being's life. Yeah, yeah, and just meeting people where they're at. And they might be able to take this aspect or this aspect, but, you know, they, they have autonomy, don't they, at the end of the day? It's um, it's something I actually wanted to look into because, again, it's been one of those things that's sort of on the fringe. When I moved into these different sectors and looked at them, it's like, oh, there's a tantra to look at, there's these other things. One of the other islands, actually, across from us when I was staying on Samui, um, there was someone who was doing neo-tantra as well, and that was... He had a very good business running, put it that way. Yes. <laughs> I think it, um, I think the neo-tantra does get, not give it a bad rep, but does put a different aspect onto it that people are a little bit avoiding of it. And people abuse these things sometimes. It's the same in, any, it's the same in anything, isn't it? It's like whatever you get into, there's always, unfortunately, someone that goes a little bit too far with it or finds that there's a great money earner to be to be made with this thing. And it, it can sometimes ruin ruin the idea of these things. And what happens is these names, again, they're just names. They're just words stuck on these practices. But that's how they're associated. People go, oh yeah, you're doing that. Oh, that's that's associated with that person that ruined it for everyone else. And it's a shame because again, context, context and experience is is vital with these processes. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's it. You have to, you've got to look deeper and you've got to look around. You know, there are the certain names that come to mind now that, you know, would put you off 
studying deeper but actually you have to mm. think oh, do you know what it's there's something more than this and these are like old age you know texts and things like that that we can explore um and try and not have that kind of belief system in it in our heads that we've learned yeah. recently so did that change the way you started to then um i say coach but advise like nutrition and, and that sort of stuff doing this type of work did it give you another perspective to look in on people's experience and say, have you tried this or have you experienced this yet? Yeah, I think um, it almost reaffirmed what I was already doing from a place of actually we don't need to complicate things. A lot of the things is just about bringing mindfulness into it and bringing more presence into the moment. I like that. It makes things a lot simpler. Like Again, that intuitive practice. You said it was body uh, food literacy. That's that was the word you used. Kind of the terminology that I would say that we use now. Just the whole like embodiment, somatic experiencing. Mm. So journaling would be a great process for that as well. Yeah, to, definitely. Yeah. I think journaling. Some for some individuals they don't um, connect with like the written word, and I think that's absolutely fine. And for some people it might be self discovery through like movement or dance or those type of things or art I think that we can't really confide people to just like written written journals anymore because it's not going to work for everyone and there are barriers I mean if you can't write and you can't interpret that maybe you're like you said maybe you learn better with movement or feeling than trying to then learn how to express these things through words which aren't your primary way of expressing going to benefit you or stress you out even more yeah and then it comes back to that stress what you were talking about earlier yeah it seems to keep coming back to the same thing it's brilliant it's really really good i think this hopefully as well for anyone that's listening that has had issues or continues to have i don't want to say issues or challenges let's say that with these different things or maybe it's food or, or lifestyle in general if they come back to that intuitive approach to how do i feel and what can i do about it i said to someone the other day they were um i said this openly as well like uh, they were struggling with a couple of different things it's like right stop okay how do you feel about this what can you do what would you like to do if you could um and then let's start putting the plan into action so um what would be a very simple approach to starting this process and breaking it down to such a manageable chunk instead of going this is my problem i can't solve it saying you probably could if you just stepped up one one run on the ladder at a time instead of looking at the top and thinking oh, I can't reach yeah yeah and I think it is it is that, that that sometimes we do need to break things down smaller but I would probably go one step further than going feelings and I would explore like sensations within the body so nice. if you're experiencing this thought what does it you know does it sit in the body anywhere is it a temperature is it a shape a size can you move it around with your breath and then if you had this thought, what does that, what's your experience of that in the body? I like that. Yeah, because again, it dials it back to, um, you're not going through the filter, like you said earlier. Otherwise, it was, it was interesting what you said there as well, because you're basically filtering it through who you think you are, as opposed to what you've actually experienced. Yeah, and I think we do, we call it like top down, and which is very important, like talk therapy and things like that. But whereas bottom up is, for example, I always say like, bottoms up experiencing is like if you stub your toe your toe would send that message to your brain and whereas then top down processing would be your brain being like I can't go near that chest of drawers again so they almost work together but I think a lot of people are stuck in that top down whereas mm. if we can tune in and start working on like that kind of interoceptive awareness yeah and I, th I think that's culture because I mean especially here everything's flowchart uh, experienced or it's like if this happens and, and this again I experienced this in the public services and armed forces it's very much you have these protocols in place to keep you safe and to always have a fallback plan so you know as a as a company or troop or, or as a team um, or as a watch in the fire service you know what people are thinking because they've read the same manual but this is where a dynamic risk assessment I always used to find this interesting because it was the thing that used to move away from the rule book so a dynamic risk assessment would be the boss would decide what happens on the ground based on his own tuition and his own experience and if he can justify it it's valid and i think that applies to life as well you've got a rule book you've got the tools but sometimes you have to use a little bit of this and a bit of this and then make something that it was never intended to make but it works yeah and i think sometimes that can feel like a risk can't it 
So it's people are a bit bit worried about it because it maybe is a little bit outside of of what we experience as the norm. But isn't isn't risk always the the growth point? It's always the start of like, oh, I did something different today, and do you know what? It felt good, and I'm still here. I'm I'm still alive, and um, I can adapt to this process. And I think that's where we can give individuals tools to be able to experience the anxiety and the fear of doing something new and re- and, and continue to do it rather than retreat back. Mm. That's, that's really, that's an interesting way of looking at that because you've almost said you're here, you don't need to turn around. Now what you can do is navigate to this next point and we'll check in again in two weeks time. Or if you have a little wobble, come back and I'll help you. Yeah, and it's just, I think, when no one tells us how, you know, no one teaches us that actually anger and fear accept emotions to have and we don't have to run away from them we can actually be with them and experience them and use them to push forwards yeah well I I used to get this build-up of anger every now and then partly because I wasn't in control of my life and it used to be my way of sort of venting almost Um, that's how I interpret it now but I used to the, the thing that helped me before and I've said this in one previous podcast was stepping back and saying here's the anger here it comes and then by the time it got there it's like oh okay Okay, it's not actually mine. <laughs> this is this is just a sensation that I've got hot, I've got like my body's got tight. Um, okay, so now if I unwind that process, if I take a deep breath, and I've just uh, I've just I was filming some stuff yesterday around six deep breaths because I was told you're only six deep breaths away from changing your biochemistry. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and I think it is. It's yeah. just learning that these emotions are not are not bigger than us. And just trusting in that. Yeah, because it's almost like they, I think people think that they're swallowed up by the emotion. But in fact, it's just a a series or collective experience of sensations. And if you can chip away at one at a time and say, okay, if I do, if I breathe and maybe I take some fresh air and then I ditch my phone for a bit, maybe all of these things start to dissipate. Yeah, because if we, I think if we try and numb them or push them down, they're still there. We've just numbed them. But rather, you know, there's quite a nice analogy, like the wave analogy. I don't know whether you've heard of it, that our emotions will come and they'll they'll come up and they'll be big and then they'll go again and it'll be smooth and then they'll come again and then they'll go again. And that's quite nice because almost like we can visualise that and we can experience it rather than it being something external to us. Yeah, I think it's going to impact us for for the rest of our life. But in fact, it's just just an experience. And and then everything is, isn't it? Everything's so, uh, when we actually realise... It comes back to um, our own experience of life. We, we, uh, part of the problem, I think, is that we think we're going to be here forever, or uh, we don't accept that something that I I listened to a lot of Alan Watts and uh, Zen Buddhism over the years. A lot of a lot of his his speeches over and over and over again. And every time I listen to them, they mean something different. Um, and it's very much about learning to accept that we're temporary and that we haven't got time to to mess about with these things and it's just like hey this is just part of the human experience we're suffering is part of the experience at times but that is just the human experience you get through these things you just continue yeah but it's it's something that no one no one teaches us is it with no one explores kind of that emotional intelligence that you know thinking in those ways that would be so supportive you know we're taught how to do maths and science and english and as long as we achieve those grades then we're good humans it's very true so that's so that's where it starts as well isn't it it's the reward culture is well done you get a sticker well done you get a suite well done you're the best in the class you go to the top group but if you're not so bright you go to the bottom group it's it makes a lot of sense so intuition is a huge thing um i'm sure i'm sure my mother would agree on that actually about now she does one-to-one work um with children looking at sort of more an intuitive approach to looking at emotion and sort of helping them through things it's like, okay you can't read not a problem we can we can work on this but if you enjoy doing this and expressing yourself in this way then let's work with that that's a great way to learn yeah and i think that's the benefit isn't it if you can to have that that one-to-one yeah, it's, it's huge and, and i tend to find you learn 20 times quicker because you've got a personalized experience as opposed to a generic um one-size-fits-all approach and I think nutrition, movement, all of these things fit into that same analogy. Like we have to make it individual because we're all so different. Yeah, and it will flux and change throughout our lifetime as well. What works for us at one point won't be what's right for us at another point. And just I think just learning to adapt to that. Otherwise, we, we look at when we're 20 or when we're 15 and say, I want to get back to that. And it's like, well, hold on a second. 
you're not there anymore. You need to be where you're at now. And we're going to work on this. We're going to make you the best person you are at 30, at 40, at 50, because that is you. You can't rewind 30 years. Um, and the body recovers incredibly quickly in your earlier years. But as you get older, you need to be more efficient with these patterns. You Use your time more wisely, I think, is a big thing. That's a great one. Yeah. No, I completely agree. What are your daily habits now? I mean, being a parent, obviously, um, you're 36 weeks, isn't it, pregnant right now? Yeah. So what were your daily habits prior to sort of, say, let's go back a couple of years? And do you still maintain them now or have they changed slightly? I think they change. They definitely change slightly. I think just we, we adapt, especially from like the pre-lockdown life. Um, yeah, so definitely habits now. I do, I'm someone that just keeps things really simple, like eat regularly throughout the day, uh, do some walking, do some sort of, well, at the moment I'm doing like a hypnobirthing, um, breath work and meditation affirmations oh, um, every day, find stillness every day, find movement every day, get sunlight every day awesome those those habits are the ones that come up every time and it's the outdoors the outdoors seems to be the one that is so generic it's for everyone the big habit is get outside get, just experience nature um it was interesting you said about hypnobirthing as well um because ellie did hypnobirthing before and it was definitely beneficial well definitely i think there is a, a when i had my son before it was 13 years ago and i had no autonomy I didn't really understand what was going on it felt very medical and I think there's like Inna May Gaskin I don't know whether you've heard of her she's a she's a midwife that uh, was one of the first I think individuals that was almost like this is about a an experience for a, a mother as much as it is for a for the baby and the way we kind of birth emotionally physically spiritually will have an impact on the rest of our lives as much as it will on our babies so um yeah i just want to create a really empowering experience for for both myself awesome. and the baby if you change the the context around something that as a culture again i am i am a man i i don't like to comment on things like pregnancy because it's not something i will ever experience i don't think uh, but what I would say is from my experiences going through doing all the hypnobirth training with Ellie, cause I wanted to experience it. I wanted to understand what I needed to do as a partner and what she wanted, what her intention was from this practice and what she wanted to achieve from it. And it was, it was really interesting to see how you've reframed an experience that in our culture is very much like, it's going to be very painful. It's going to be a traumatic experience. It's like, no, when you go through this, these different things, it's, the intention is to have a, a beautiful experience, uh, a loving experience, something that is not painful. It's part of the process. And again, it's like I see this in movement. If you expect to have a bad training session, you probably will. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that is if we can create in our subconscious that this, for example, this labor is going to be intense and it's going to be powerful and it's going to be empowering and beautiful and safe for everyone involved. Mm then we're much more likely to experience that because there is more oxytocin. And as you know, you've done the course that, you know, we do. I just feel like as females, we'll have more autonomy. Yeah. And for, for those that aren't too sure about oxytocin, just think the body's more relaxed. So you're going into a process far more relaxed um, and less tense about the situation because you feel more prepared as well. And you feel more uh, intuitive about and in control of, of your own body. And trusting of it as well. Yeah. Women are incredible. Like, there's something, uh, just the whole, to see a bump and then see a baby, I'm like, whoa, that was that was there? This is, especially when you've got your hand like, because obviously, um, Ellie, my wife's uh, 26 weeks. So just at the time where you can feel the baby moving, that's where it's surreal. And then, then they're there in front of you. And it's incredible. It is. They say, um, there was a lovely quote I read that they say when a woman's in labour, they'll go up to the stars and get the spirit of their unborn baby and bring it back down, which I thought was really cute. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I think that hands down is the single-handedly the most impressive and just incredible thing about being a human being, how we can make more human beings. It's just insane. When you understand, when you start to even comprehend the process, it's crazy. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? Like how it even happens. Uh, to finish every podcast, um, Rachel, I'm keen to leave the listeners with some simple routines that they can adopt. You may have covered some of these already. I'm sure you have. And something they can apply on a daily basis. What principles would be the top of your list to form the foundations of human health? 
or in other words, a human first approach. Oh, so I definitely, again, go with those simple ones like get outside every day, find um, some sort of solitude every day, read every day, eat regularly, move every day. Just but keep it very basic. That's incredible. That's really good. Rachel, thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure to have you on there. Um, really good conversation as well. I just It's so nice to discuss some of these things so openly as well based upon your own experience and, and people you've worked with um, because it's some of these things aren't talked about in our culture and, and many other cultures and it's very important that we actually take the time to, to, to listen and, and be aware that there are many different approaches to, to life and none of them are wrong. They're just different. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you ever so much for inviting me. You're welcome. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. For more information on where to find Rachel and her work, please check out the show notes and I will see you on episode 14.